The Latino vote played a big part in President Joe Biden's victory over Donald Trump in November, going heavily for Biden in battleground states like Arizona and Nevada. But Latino voters proved they were no monolith. In Texas and Florida, and even in enclaves in New Jersey and Massachusetts, a greater percentage of them voted for Trump in 2020 than had in 2016. And Latino voters in Florida played a big part in ousting freshman Democratic representatives Donna Shalala and Debbie Mucarcel Powell, replacing them both with conservative Cuban-Americans Maria Elvira Salazar and Carlos Jimenez. Both parties are now preparing for 2022 and trying to make sense of what went right and wrong for them among Latinos. Our guest today is Carlos Odio, who worked for Barack Obama and more recently founded Equis Labs, a firm that aims to use data to get at what motivates America's diverse Latino community when they vote. Well, welcome, Carlos, to our show. Uh, Glad to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you, and um, we appreciate you joining us. What, What should politicians trying to woo Latino voters take from the 2020 election results? Yeah, look, I think the 2020 results reinforce something that um, that I think was known but not fully understood, which is that the Latino voter still looks more like a persuadable voter. Um, at least large swaths do. And I think the very high support levels for Democrats had masked to some extent that truth, um, that there are many Latino voters who at the end are kind of swinging and they have mostly swung to Democrats um, in recent elections. And so I think some of the um, small but meaningful shifts that we saw in 2020 just validate once again that there's a level of engagement um, that is needed uh, and that because there has been an asymmetrical uh, outreach to Latinos in the last decade, whereas mostly Democrats doing it, once Republicans actually get with the program and do the same, the vote looks a lot more competitive. Yeah, some have said that the results mean we we actually shouldn't talk about a Latino vote anymore, that it's just too diverse. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's where I get lost, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, we're all about saying uh, Latinos are not a monolith. Um, and that to, to fully engage Latino vote, you have to move beyond the idea of a monolith. But that's not to say Latinos aren't a thing, that there is not a group identity. The reality is Latinos have more in common with each other culturally than, than not. Um, and that's true even of Cubans. It's actually on politics where, for example, a group like the Cubans goes its own way. But culturally speaking, um, there is this identity. And in fact, part of what we are seeing among some of the Latinos who voted for Trump for the first time in 20, meaning they're not the hardcore Republicans, is that they still have a very strong affiliation um, with Latino identity, that they still have a, a high sense of linked fate um, against what some people have been saying. It's actually the less assimilated Latino that I think in some ways um, has been has shown the most movement of late. Yeah, I, I'm curious about that. I mean, where do you see that going into the future? Do you Do you think that will persist or that there will be more assimilation, that Latinos will sort of melt into the American electorate in a way that um, previous immigrant groups did, you know, the Italians or the Irish in the, the last century? Or will, it, will they remain more distinct like African-Americans have? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, and obviously no easy answers. Um, that's it. I do think, you know, I think this is like a grand question in research that we all have to answer. Um, if you have two voters 
let's say they live in a rural area, they have a demographic profile that's basically identical, um, but one of them identifies as Hispanic, maybe because they're 10th generation Hispanic. Um, is that label meaningfully different? Does it mean that they're going to have different political attitudes? You know, I, I suspect that the answer is yes. I think we've seen enough to say that that is true. Um, so you go to a place like New Mexico, um, where they'll say, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, like my co-founder, Stephanie Valencia. Um, and you still see the increased, the, the ongoing salience of that Hispanic identity. And so even with assimilation, while we'll see shifts, um, I still think there will still be power in that label. I don't think that's going to go away. But I think it is a good open question in terms of what this means um, for things like partisanship, right? Do non-college Latino men start behaving more like their non-college white peers because they're in the same social spaces, they're in the same workspaces. And I think there are a lot of open questions as to where some of this vote um, could shift or start uh, approximating more what non-Latino populations look like. But for now, being Latino still does seem like a major differentiator. Yeah, Democrats, a lot of Democrats anyway, thought that the growth in the Latino vote, which has you know, been persistently becoming a greater part of the electorate with every every two years pass, um, that it meant the Democrats have this big demographic advantage that would eventually yield a permanent majority. I'd be curious on your reflections on that. A big question of 2020 was, is this a one-time occurrence or is it a trend? If you're a Democrat and you're looking at 65% support with a population that is fast-growing, you're pretty happy with it, right? You say, if we're going to get 65% and you're going to still get this trend line population growth, that's a great place to be in um, and will be uh, a cornerstone of a democratic coalition for a long time going forward. If Republicans can show that they can make inroads um, and that 65% could keep decreasing, um, then I think it, it looks a little bit different um, for Democrats at a time when um, Democrats can't afford to lose members of the coalition, right? They actually need to be growing it. There are a lot of anti-Trump voters who are going to leave the coalition who need to be replaced. So I think I think it is a, it is the big question of the moment for which we still don't have good answers. How much of it was Trump uh, versus how much of this was just a a shift or realignment? What do you make of the what happened in South Texas and Florida, where there was apparent apparently a big shift towards Trump among Latino voters that we didn't see in other places where it went the other way, like Arizona? Well, I think it's important to say, and I, I say this with a caveat, right? Like the Latino vote overall um, was incredibly democratic. Um, it delivered various states for, or helped uh, deliver various states for Joe Biden. It, the Latino vote lost Biden no votes, no states. There's no state that Joe Biden loses because of the Latino vote. You know, you give him the same margins among Hispanics in Texas or Florida, and he still loses. Um, there were a couple of House races in South Florida. And so with that caveat, the reality is Trump did make gains with the Latino vote across the country. There was a baseline shift across the country that cuts across geography or place of origin. But it was uh, far worse, as you said, in South Texas and in Miami-Dade. Um, actually, South Florida, because into Broward County. And in those places, it looks like he was able to build upon this baseline shift and do something more dramatic. And the reasons why are very different between those two places, right? Those That is where uh, the regional idiosyncrasies come into play. Yeah, speak to that a bit. I mean, because I think a lot of people saw Trump making 
immigration a such a big part of his his campaign and and his presidency and deriding immigrants and they thought my goodness you know he's just going to give away the latino vote and that's not what we saw this is a super important question and i think it requires going back to the fall because it is true that we we talked so much about immigration right through Uh, the early part of the Trump presidency. But it is important to point out that in the midst of COVID, he stopped doing it in quite the same way, especially toward the end, once he realized that he was, once his people realized he was making gains with Latino vote. So the salience of immigration actually shifted pretty dramatically from where it had been in 2016 to where it was in 2020. And I think that's actually a very big part of the story of how he's able to make gains. When you poll, when we look at our polling of Latino voters in 2019, you had a lot of more conservative or moderate Latinos holding back from Donald Trump. And you'd go into the qualitative and you ask, and they'd say family separation, kids in cages, anti-Latino rhetoric, especially around, like, say, the El Paso shooting, as being reasons to hold back. Um, Same reasons that it had many folks hold back from him in 2016. This was not, I think sometimes we think it's about the intricacies of immigration policy. It's not so much that. There's an identity thing. There's, this guy is against us. And I think that was holding a lot of people back. Once COVID happens, and once Trump allows immigration to be a little bit more on the back burner, and frankly, the media allows it. If you look at coverage of immigration and the end run of the campaign, it it was not um, a top five. Then you realize that allowed these more conservative Latinos to find other excuses to come around to him, largely around things like uh, like the economy, especially in a COVID moment. What are you finding about where Trump was able to make inroads? Uh, did he bring in new Latino voters who'd stayed home in 2016, or, or did he convert ones who were previously Democrats? From what we are seeing, and I think we'll have much more on this, we it, the non-voter, I think, is a central part of this story. I think you had a lot of folks who generally stay on the sidelines um, of politics who were eligible in 16 and chose not to vote, which in itself was a decision, right? It was saying, I don't think either uh, party is uh, delivering for me, maybe a little bit more Republican-leaning, still a little bit hard to tell, um, who this time around does get galvanized for Trump. It's not dissimilar from what we saw among a kind of non-college white voter in 2016. It's just that there was a dam between Trump and Latino voters in 16 that somehow seemed to have fallen um, in 20. Um, and so that that kind of voter found something in him um, that got them out. Now we're talk- talking huge numbers, but enough to to make a difference um, on the margins. Kind of a voter who has not as fully formed a partisan identity, maybe a lower information voter um, who sees Trump as a businessman, this outsider persona, um, and was in all of our polling stubbornly giving him high marks on the economy, even in the worst of COVID. Your research has has found a big gender gap among Latino voters. Speak to that if you could. You know, what did you find about the way Latinas see politics versus Latinos? Yeah, great question. I mean, it, it really popped out at us when we started polling in summer of 2019. Uh, it pervaded all of our analysis. Just no matter which demographic variable or crosstab you want to look at, gender was just popping out everywhere we looked at it. And it was in particular that Latinas, women, um, were very, very, very anti-Trump. And you could narrow into certain segments, you know, like unmarried, uh, non-college Latinas, uh, uh, actually across age. And it was, you know, sky high opposition to Donald Trump. It did change a little bit as we got into the heat of the election. Like women did shift a little bit toward Trump too. Um, But it was really men that you are seeing 
um, stay strong with the Republican Party, maybe then making some gains, mostly really just staying. It's a story of women fleeing the Republican Party um, through the last several elections um, and that being aggravated in a moment of Trump. It happened in the broader electorate, right? The gender divide overall, um, but does seem to have uh, uh, struck a note um, with um, with Latinas in particular. You could look at rural areas and you would see um, rural men being some of the most approving of Trump on the economy and rural women being some of the least across categories. So, you know, you have urban women, suburban, whatever, and then rural women being the least approving, rural men being the most approving. And so these are folks in the same households having very different perspectives of what was happening um, in the country. Yeah, it's it's, it's astonishing. Um, and it, it sort of begs the question, um, why did that difference exist? I mean, is it that um, men were less offended by Trump's bombastic style of politics and women were more? Or what do you make of it? Yeah, it's a good question. And look, I think some of this, uh, unfortunately, requires speculation, right? I think our research can only um, go so far. Obviously, we ask and we look. Um, and I think part of it with men, as I mentioned, is that there is, you know, look, a lot of men are, are, are on the same online spaces as other white men, right? They're on Reddit um, getting the same information. They're in this kind of alternate media universe on YouTube. Um, you know, what we were seeing in the research was a big difference on this idea of Trump as a businessman um, and the idea that that was a pro. So there is this kind of Trump intrigue um, around him representing this very entrepreneurial kind of American dream spirit. The idea that if you uh, work hard, you can succeed despite the obstacles, right? It's the same way that Elon Musk resonates with a certain kind of uh, uh, male voter as well. And I think that's a big part of the story. I mean, with women, uh, you know, it's it's different. Like women were bearing the brunt of the worst of the Trump policies in so many ways, um, and we're left to contend with it. Um, it whether they were, whether on economics, um, whether on immigration, you know, across the board, it was women who were who were bearing the brunt, um, and men who were finding other reasons. Some men, I should say, not all men, because in majority still supported Biden, but some men who um, were lured by him in the same way that non-college white men were. Let's turn to President Biden. He's, um, you know, it looks like he's going to prioritize immigration legislation in, in the way previous Democratic presidents have not. Um, is that going to help him with Latino voters if he follows through? I think he will. And, you know, I think it's worth saying a lot of folks, including ourselves, have said, and I've been saying for years, don't just talk to Latinos about immigration. Latinos care about uh, jobs and the economy and education and healthcare, just like everybody else and in some ways more. Um, so don't just talk about immigration. I think some people have overreacted to that point and said, well, then let's not talk about immigration at all. And I think it misses the point that while a Latino voter might not say immigration is a top issue, it is a threshold question. It's a litmus test. It's a way to differentiate between the parties, who is with us, who is not with us. And I think part of what was happening in 2020 is that Trump and more importantly, the right-wing media ecosystem muddy the waters a little bit. Uh, Democrats hadn't delivered on immigration. Their voters were being told. In fact, Obama deported all these folks. And so the waters were muddied where it was, well, yeah, Trump is terrible on immigration, but it's not like Democrats can deliver either. It's a wash. Let's go talk about other issues like the economy where we think maybe Trump might have an advantage. And so that's why I think pushing on immigration in this moment is smart. For Biden politically, I think it is the way 
um, that you differentiate between the parties. I think you have to deliver though. It's not enough to raise the expectations. You have to have to show something um, at the end of this. It's also a way to get some of the Latino voters who still have not gotten involved in the process galvanized. There's still a lot of folks who are on sidelines, younger voters for whom immigration really is important. Um, and precisely because it hasn't been settled, have been waiting it out. Yeah, there have been some reports lately that the that the flow of immigrants to the to the southern border has picked up, a lot of them unaccompanied minors. And it raises a question, you know, if this becomes a quagmire, could it hurt Biden? Well, look, I think the I think presidents succumb on this issue when they look like they are uh, the the victims or the or I should say the not the victims but uh, they're the subject instead of the people who are uh, driving this. You have to be uh, you have to take action when it comes to the issue of immigration and show you are trying to solve the issue. Um, and I think that's a lot of what the electorate responds to. Um, there's always potential for backlash. I think Republicans are always eager to weaponize immigration. They will find a way even when you're doing nothing. The migrant caravans seem to come out of nowhere. They will always find a reason to try to weaponize this, find examples. Um, for Democrats, though, the response is not just to hope it goes away, um, but actually to show that you are taking steps to, to address it and to fix it. Yeah, you work with Democrats. Um, so I'm curious what you think the party's goal should be here. Should it be to move the needle to get 70, 80% of the Latino vote or more? Or should it be to try to... Main, to figure we can maintain that 65%. And as it's a growing block of votes, it's going to help us. Right. Some of the higher ends Democratic margins, I think we're always going to be hard to sustain. I think you could say the same thing about the Black vote. You know, it's unsustainable to ask Latino and Black voters to save Democrats in every election in every state. Um, and so Democrats do need to build a broader coalition. I think the goal with Latinos is to say, um, can we hold at least 65% um, and can we get people galvanized so we're getting, we're sustaining turnout? Can we bring back the Latinos who were energized and voted um, in 18 and in 20? And I think that's a doable proposition. And I think that ends up being, that ends up anchoring um, a future looking coalition for the Democrats. You know, some say that, you know, Latinos who've been here for for generations or who immigrated to the United States legally resent those who are coming to the border and trying to get in um, without following all the rules. Did you Have you found that at all in your research? Is that a ma- motivating issue for some Latinos? Look, there are all kinds of Latino voters and all kinds of attitudes across the spectrum, just like you would say about any other kind of voter, kind of abroad, across the electorate. And so, yeah, there are anti-immigrant Latinos, undoubtedly. I think the question as we talk about this issue um, of whether it's a, a, a kind of a plus or minus politically speaking, um, is that even for some Latinos who may agree with Trump on, say, the wall or on limiting immigration going forward, still view the more extreme uh, measures uh, supported by some Republicans, by the Stephen Miller wing of the Republican Party, as not so much a policy concern, but as a, a question of identity or culture, um, of racism. And that's not true of all. There is a more conservative Latino. That said, that more conservative Latino is also conservative for other reasons. It's not them being anti-immigrant that is driving their conservatism, right? Um, it actually tends to be wrapped up in a lot of other feelings that makes them kind of off limits to Democrats. But there's another 
sort of softer Republican, swingier um, Democrat overall, um, for whom, again, this becomes more of a differentiator. So yeah, it strikes both ways. Is it going to backlash with some people? Of course it's going to backlash with some people. But I think the net positive um, in all the research we've looked at is undeniable. Carlos, we really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of CQ Future. I'm Sean Zeller. You can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com or your favorite podcast app. Thank you.